Welcome to the podcast, Widening Circles Sacred Story. Um, we're your host. I'm Sky Williams Tao, and I use they, them pronouns. And I'm Jamili Omar. I use she, her pronouns. And in this episode of this podcast and video series, we'll be discussing the governance section of the report. And as a question to hold our wonderings and considerings, um, we have the question, what is faithful governance? We'll get into that a little bit more later, but first, uh, we're going to do a chalice lighting. So to begin, I'm going to invite you to ground whatever way that makes sense for you right now and for your body and for your surroundings, um, but to give yourself a little bit of grounding in who you are right now and where you are right now. Maybe take a little bit of a breath. Uh, Tune into your tune into tune into what what's present for you right now. And then I'm going to invite you back into tuning in with us and tuning into this place and this time and this this shared experience right now. And to, to formally begin us, um, I'll read our chalice lighting as Jamelia lights our chalice. We return to love again and again and again. We value what is true. We honor holiness. We try and we grow and we fail and we rest and we try. We are here together now. We need one another. We covenant. And for our big discussion section, um, Again, our question for this episode is what is faithful governance? And I'm wondering, Jamili, if you can talk about why we chose that question. Yeah, it seems like a, a funny question to pose for um, Unitarian Universalists who come from so many different faith traditions and no faith traditions. And some of us don't even want to acknowledge this is a faith tradition. Uh, so it seems like a funny faith place to come from, but when we were we were brainstorming that word faithful, because this section about governance is about policies and procedures and some things that seem very um, far removed from faith, far removed from a trust in something beyond and inside of ourselves. So it seems very practical. And so how would this have anything to do with faithfulness? And we're really thinking about 
faith in terms of what are we being faithful to and how can our governance be a full reflection of the values that we hold and the mission that we swear ourselves to when we're governing within a religious or congregational context. And so how can our governance, our policies, our procedures, our decisions be faithful to that value and mission that we covenant to? Um, that's really where we were thinking about, about faithfulness. Uh, how can our governance be faithful to our values? Yeah, I know when we were when we were doing some of this brainstorming, you were I, I remember you saying this thing, but like around, you know, are is our governance faithful to our values? Is that are our values what's sitting in the center of our governance, or is it tradition, or is it um, our, our policies? Is that what's sitting in the center of our governance? And um, that our values probably should be, our faiths probably should be in the center of our governance since we are religion. Um, and our religious organization. Yeah, and one of the really big controversial conversations that every organization has every year is about um, how we allocate our money. We have a pot of money. How do we allocate that? And we can choose either to allocate it based on our values. We say we value um, combating homelessness, and so we're going to put our money towards that value. Or we can say we have X amount of money for social justice and where do we want to put it? And so the first example leads us to, to lead our congregations from the place of our values and to fund the things that we value, which also means that we don't fund the things that we don't value. And so when we look at our budget, we're really looking at a statement of values. When we put money to children and youth programming, we're saying our children and youth are valuable. And when we don't, we're saying, yeah, they're, they're, you know, not really valuable here. They're not really important. Um, and it's the same with our accessibility. If we say we don't have the money to build a ramp, what we're really saying is it's not important enough to us to have people with mobility challenges in our building. And so we're not putting our money there. And so our values come out, whether we want them to or not, when we look at our policies, our procedures, our financial spreadsheets, it's all there. Which makes me think of um, one of the first lines in this chapter, um, in the governance chapter, is um, when we talk about governance, we are talking about power. So it's on page 22 of the written one. It's Again, it's the first line after the two quotes in the governance section. And so when you were, you were talking, I was thinking about, um, you know, money as being a reflection of what we value, a reflection of power in a really, I think, direct way. Um, and so it is a reflection of what we value. <laughs> like, or um, at least it's a reflection of what folks have valued, right? I mean, I think sometimes we also inherit budgets. And if we're not intentional about what that means, then we can potentially end up reflecting the values of actually a different time or place than we are now. Um, yeah, and, and just it's a really direct tie, I think, between money and power and, and governance as being the exercise of, of, of our power. And are we doing that in service to our values? Are we mm -hmm. exercising all the power we have in, in service to the values we have in this world? Or, or not, right? <laughs> 
And you make a really good point about inherited systems. So we inherit budgets, we inherit policies. In the current position I have, I inherited some policies that I look at and I think, oh, there was a very specific problem and this policy was implemented to address that problem rather than me going to the person and addressing the problem with them. We just did a policy on it. And it doesn't make sense. It's, it's out of date. It's not in line with the values that I bring to this position. Um, and luckily in religious education, uh, we get to change some things a whole lot quicker than at the, you know, I call it big church, right? So little church is a whole lot more nimble um, for a lot of reasons, also having to do with power, um, but we can change those things. So then in big church, in the overall church governance, especially in larger parishes, um, how do they change? How quickly can we change policies and procedures in the system? And are those really keeping up with what's needed today? Or we've inherited that from a legacy from the past. And you made a really interesting point, Sky, when we were talking about this, that theologically Unitarian Universalism is well established for change. We should be able to change and adapt and grow well. And I'm wondering if you want to say any more about that. Yeah, and, and part of what you're saying also makes me think of um, one thing I was thinking when we were discussing this question of, of faithful governance is like, at least for me, that also resonates in my idea of stewardship, which I've heard a lot in congregations is sort of stewardship being the fundraising term. Um, and then I had to give a sermon on stewardship, right? So I had to think about like, what does stewardship actually mean to me? Um, and it's really about this, like, I think coming out of youth, I think that's actually where it lives in my faith formation, this idea that you like, you know, youth ministry is this funny thing where it's a uh, very quick turnover, right? Because people are only in it for four years. <laughs> You're in it for your high school years. Um, but you always have this constant turnover of mentors and folks coming in. So you're like, at least my experience of it is you're constantly both growing from this place of being mentored into this place of being a mentor. Um, and then of course, you know, like, I mean, it's a more complicated constellation because you also have adult advisors and this sort of whole constellation of things. Um, but I think it lives in me in this idea of like that stewardship is inheriting something and, and changing it. <laughs> that it's like that you honor your ancestors, but part of what it means to honor your ancestors is to, to be responsive to the modern day, to be responsive to the world that you live in and not the world that they necessarily lived in, in part because you want there to be descendants and for there to be descendants, you have to adapt and change to the times that you're in. Um, yeah, and I, I think I was thinking of when I said the thing about it being really rooted in our theology, I was thinking about, you know, I mean, this idea of liberalism to me is, um, as I've heard it explained, is very much about this idea of being responsive to the times that you're in. Um, and like the, uh, I've forgotten who said this, but the, 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 the quote in my mind is, uh, revelation is an ongoing experience. The idea that Unitarian, Unitarian Universalism revelation is not sealed in a tomb. You know, like we don't have a canon that is untouchable. Like revelation is ongoing. We believe that people are still having revelations about what it means to be Unitarian Universalism and what it means to, to be in this faith. Um, 
And so theologically, I think that actually is really aligned with this idea of adaption and changing, adaptation and changing. Well, as uh, Octavia Butler says, what doesn't change dies, God has changed. Um, yeah. I'm curious if we can um, get back to that, get back to the text and think about the, the intersections of governance and power, formal and informal powers, because um, that's all tied up in governance, right? Who's making decisions for the congregation? Yeah, and one thing, um, one thing I think is fascinating in this in this um, document is that they talk about both the problems with way too informal governance and very formalized governance, um, where they talk about. Uh, oh, I don't know if you have this. The idea of, I know they explicitly talk about informal governance, um, and the ways in which that can, informal structures privilege those in power. It's a little box um, in, the, in the printed version, it's on page 28. Um, and like, you know, talks about, uh, one of the quotes I underlined is informal structures also sometimes bypass, that's not the, also sometimes bypass adopted procedures, ratified policies and accepted governance agreements. Personal relationships are central to the work of organizations, yet should not be used instead of sound governance structures. Um, at the same time, later on, they talk a little bit more when they're talking about the UUA, like the association. Um, they speak to, um, the, the, here's the first recommendation. Um, again, that's on page 34 in the printed one which is the first recommendation is governance within the association needs streamlining as outdated and duplicative structures exist. The unnecessary complexity of the unit, current Unitarian Universalist governance structures is biased towards the more privileged who have the time and resources for extensive volunteerism. And the first line of that recommendation is, in contrast to local and regional groups, which often operate too informally, there are too many Unitarian Universalist organizations with overly complicated leadership structures, which makes, makes needed change difficult and slow. Yeah, so I don't know if you have thoughts, but I, I just think that is interesting that there can be problems with both too informal and too like Byzantine or formal structures of government. Yeah, and I wanted to I wanted to point out in that first box, the box informal structures privilege those in power. Um, the last paragraph of that of that section says structures determine the flow of information and power between the various levels of management. And so as we're thinking, what my you know somebody might be thinking, oh my, the governance is fine, the way that is is fine, is. I would bet that there are very few congregations out there, organizations of any kind, where everybody says communication is 100% smooth. And nobody ever says that. Everybody at every meeting I've ever been at has said our, our communication needs to be better. And the link between who has the information, who needs the information, and who can act on the information is about governance. And so thinking about where the power is, um, can help us to think about, well, how is this form of governance helping us live our values? If our value is participation, and 
the other uh, section in here that you and I got into a little bit that I highly recommend everybody take some time with is the fifth principle project and thinking about democracy because we really have enshrined democracy as the way we're going to do things. So can people really participate in the democratic or the open and free running of an organization if they don't have the information? And so how do we get the information to people uh, and who's blocking that? And is that in line with our values? Yeah, and it um, makes me think of uh, Jamili dropped the, the fifth principle in our chat earlier. And so the fifth principle being the right of conscience and the use of democratic democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. Um, and I will say every time I read the principles now, I'm just like, I'm so curious what the article two, the, you know, this, this um, considering this, this work that's being done at the national level to consider our principles and to rewrite them um, is going to do with that, you know, but like, but I think that there is that, we, we have that principle, right? I mean, democracy is right there in it. Um, and yeah, and what does that mean about information and power? And um, one thing we talked about is this section focuses a lot on the UUA, on the association sort of the national level. And as I was saying, I was telling Jamila, like, I, like one of my reactions is like that in some of our congregations, I think folks have this reaction that's like, I don't care about the UUA. Like, and I think that that actually is kind of a problem. Like, I don't think everybody has to be like, you know, I, I'm, I'm totally like a national level Unitarian Universalism person. I recognize that. And not everybody has to be that. But if we're thinking about democracy, I think like part of that is being informed, like being connected to. Um, interesting, my brain is like in covenant with, right? Like, um, and I think there's there's a, totally a question of what is it what is it what does it actually mean to be in covenant with your leaders um, and for for both ways right for for us to give our leaders power and also for our leaders to be accountable to us um, and then I'm not sure you know that the U.S. is a great model of that in terms of what it means for democracy right now, right? And so like, what, what does it, if, if that is our value, if that's our religious value, and I think I would say theologically, I can see that living in like, you know, the idea that, that um, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, right? I mean, I think that, again, <laughs> I'm hoping the principles change language myself, but like, you know, like, like, I do think we have that theological idea, however you want to, whatever language you want to use with it. And so like, I think that feeds into this, um, idea that like people should have a voice in the way they are governed. Um, and, and, and what does that mean? Which gets really complicated because when we talk about democracy, sometimes we hold up the ideal of democracy means uh, one person, one vote. And maybe that could work in smaller, smaller size congregations, smaller organizations, um, consensus, and even one person, one vote is really clunky and slow. Mm -hmm. And in larger congregations, I'm thinking our 500, 900 person congregations, I have a hard time imagining how that would get, anything would get done and accomplished at any time. And so maybe what we really mean is one person, one voice, one person, each person gets to speak their conscience or express their conscience. Um, and 
maybe we're representative democracy. And so that the, the persons who are representing on the board really are in touch with the will of the people that are not on the board. And so they're, again, we're getting back to this idea of communication is how do we govern ourselves in a transparent way so that it fits in with our values of democracy, even though we're not technically democratic in that sense. Yeah, and and um, it also makes me think of, I mean, I, I think I, when you were speaking, I, I, I said, like, I don't know that I love the one person, one vote. And I, I, like, when you were speaking, I was thinking about, I think in part because it feeds into this idea of equality and not equity. The idea that, you know, like every person, like, should have a voice. And I believe that is true. And I think if we talk about that, we can't talk about that without the reality that we have systemic oppression. So we can't talk about that. Mm. I, th I, think, I think that like what that misses, that's what it misses for me is this like the idea that people are already exercising power unequally in our congregations. Um, you know, and like, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, I don't know that everybody needs to have exactly the same level of power. That's not what I'm sort of hoping for, I think. Um, but is that power differential explicit? Is it um, intentional? Is it in line with our values? Or is it that the folks who are white have more power, right? The folks who have more money and time for volunteering have more power. Um, and, just, and just recognizing that that means that our governance system is out of, maybe out of line with our values. And that, that maybe said something about what we actually value, right? Or like, that's when we get into that complicated question. Yeah, and it gets really sticky really fast. I was thinking about where in congregations power lives. So clearly the, the official power is with the board and the staff have power, committee heads or team leads have power. Are there other places where power lives in a congregation? Yeah, I mean, one, one thing I've heard just in like training is, you know, like also elders potentially, or um, there was another term that I'm not thinking of, but like elders may or may not, right? I think actually some congregations, there's also, I think, a, a sort of ageism where elders are seen as like not valuable members because they're not productive, right? And quotes around that word. Um, and there can be other spaces where they are particularly I think if they have folks who pledge a lot of money, I've heard as like a, a place where people can have power that is like not explicit. Um, you know, and I think about this, this question of informal, like that I think there is a certain level of relational power that happens in churches. I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing, but it can, it can be a site of power that is, uh, not named explicitly and is not necessarily, like it, it can be, I think, a problematic site of power, although it isn't necessarily. Um, know, do you have any other thoughts about sites of power in our congregations? That, that discussions of power lead us directly to white supremacy culture and talking about what is valued and where, where the action comes from, from an idea. So that's really about who has power, right? Where does the action come from out of an idea? And we, 
I think kind of not to make too sweeping of a generalization, but that organizations that act out of white supremacy culture imbue power in non-persons. So the written word, well, this is what the policy says, we have to do it this way. Um, the, the procedure, right? So, oh, well, Robert's rules says we have to do it this way and we can't divert from that. Even though the relationship between the parties in the room or the parties having the discussion would ask for a different type of relationship. Um, I think too, when we don't call out or name or um, in any way have consequences for people who misconduct, whether it is staff, ministers, or congregants, when we allow bad behavior, right, we're again worshiping or giving power to the person over the health of the system. And I feel like that's a, that's another symptom of, um, we have a lot of bullies. Some of our congregations have a lot of bullies <laughs> and yeah. we allow that to, to continue on. Right, which I think is absolutely a question of how we use our power and whether it's a faithful use of our power. I mean, like, you know, like if we genuinely believe in covenant, if, if, if relationships are actually the center of our religion, which, you know, that's what I believe. Um, and we also let people bully in our congregations. Uh, like, is that faithful governance, right? <laughs> like, um, yeah, and I was thinking about also like, you know, in terms of sites of power that are not explicit, you know, whether you can, if, if you have an unexamined white, like culture that values white norms and ways of moving, right? Um, folks who do not have those ways of moving are gonna have less power in your system. Because if you have somebody who's like, why do you keep referring to that policy that makes no sense, right? I mean, if you know the policy, and then if you're also comfortable with somebody using the policy in the room, right? And are comfortable also being able to say, oh no, but if you can also say this with the policy, right? Have that conversation that's so centered around the document. Um, whereas if you're just from a, a place where that, that's sort of a nonsense conversation, right? Like you, you won't be able to engage with, with it in the same way. Um, yeah. And even um, not just, not only, and not to diminish, but not only cultural differences based on race, but also cultural differences based on economic status and education. Because we have folks who want to participate and want to be involved and uh, are either are not welcome or um, find that they're demeaned because they don't have a particular level of education or a particular income. Um, I see it, I, as personal rant, um, when we ask our board of trustees to be the lead givers on our stewardship campaigns. Mm -hmm. So we want 100% commitment from our board of directors. If that's a known expectation, somebody without means isn't going to put themselves in that position necessarily, because that's embarrassing. So we do it very unintentionally, very unknowingly and unthoughtfully. Yeah, and I was thinking about the the way also, I think it's a there's also a question of what expertise we ask 
which I think is, is alongside, right, alongside that question, you know, you're saying about like, you know, what we require of our leaders, right? And I think our board tends to be uh, one of those places of this question of what do we require of our leaders? If we ask for a large financial contribution, that's, <laughs> that's a clear, you know, like um, if we ask somebody to be like really good at something like policy governance, I think that actually also has class implications. Um, and I know it's something, you know, like at, at times I navigated as like a youth member on the board, right? Um, when I served as like a teenager on a, on a board. Um, I think, and I think it is an interesting question. What if the expertise we required is that somebody was really faithful? Um, like that was actually what we wanted from our leaders was, was faithful leadership. Um, and I don't know what that, <laughs> I don't totally know what that means, but I think it's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to take us back to the document because one of the um, critiques, almost a critique or a question or a hesitancy in a discussion group I was in about the document, specifically this section is, okay, so they talk about the UUA. How does this apply to my congregation? Or how does this apply to my fellowship, which is really small? Um, how would you translate these recommendations for the congregation for the local setting? Mm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think some of them are explicitly for the local setting. So like the informal one, I think is actually speaking more towards the, the local setting. Um, I also, I, I think I, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I, I do think our congregations have an obligation to participate in the National Association. I, yeah, I'm just gonna say I do. And like I said, you know, I'm a, I, I, I am a high key, a strong like national UU. And I don't think everybody, you know, like, like I'm following article two. <laughs> I don't think anybody has to be like as, as into it maybe as I am, but I do. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Have you made baseball cards for the players? You know, like. I have not, you know, so like, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, like a Susan Frederick Gray baseball card, because that would be. That would be awesome. Uh, I know. I'm, I'm actually really into that. <laughs> um, and I, I do. I do actually think we have an obligation to be to be involved myself. Um, and right. I mean, I think like like this. Like Anna. And I recognize. You know that this is like. I don't have the power to change the UA bylaws by myself. Right. Like I, some of this stuff is like. Well, that's actually not in my power to do. <laughs> um, but I think that some of the the ways, like like when we talked about the first recommendation, right? That like governance within the association needs streamlining as outdated and duplicative structures exist. Like that, I think is. I was saying. I mean, I think the. It has a complicated relationship to any given individual in Unitarian Universalism. Um, and I think the questions they're asking, right, like, what does it mean to be over, overly complicated? What does it mean to, um, like, be more biased towards those who are privileged and who have the time and extensive resources for, towards volunteerism? I think that question actually 
is one that applies to our local congregations, even if um, folks aren't engaged with the governance structures of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Um, yeah. Um, I think another action for me that's very applicable at the local or smaller level isn't even a recommendation. It's the big box on nominating committees as agents of change. Right. That's very actionable by a wide variety of organizations that, that how are you thinking about who is nominated for leadership, who's invited to leadership, who's discouraged from leadership, who's doing the inviting, right? Are those representative of who you want in leadership? Um, and so taking a look at that section seems to me not just a, a first step, but a really good first step for an organization to do that assessment of who's nominating into leadership roles. Yeah, and I think it's, a, it's also a really good way to ground, like, I think some of, you know, like sometimes I think we get a little abstract. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, like, so, you know, like the abstract question might be, what is a faithful leader? Do we want faithful leaders? You know, that, like that sort of expertise at the center of our governance structure. And then this is a really concrete way to, to actually put that into action, right? Like, so how, are we asking folks to become leaders or, you know, and if, if we're not asking, that probably just means that folks who think like, I think that allows that, that means that folks are more likely to nominate themselves if they think they should be leaders, um, which is, is a system, right? <laughs> like, um, um, and what, what, like on a really practical level, like what expertise is, is being valued and how are people gaining power and how are people using power and are those, you know, in alignment with the values of the congregation or the church? Yeah. As I'd like to ask, is there any other low hanging fruit in this mm -hmm. chapter, anything that a congregation or an organization um, or even a startup, I keep thinking about, um, I'm shifting in my chair here. I keep thinking about how uh, if I was starting something from the ground up, what would I what would I implement right off the bat? What would I not want to become a toxic system if I could snap my fingers and start something fresh? And so I'm curious if you've seen any low-hanging fruit in that sense in this chapter. I have a thought and it doesn't come directly out of the chapter. So you can tell me whether you think it's it's in line with it or not. Um, but I really find it just in my experience is like the value of relationships. And it's always a balance how, you know, how much relationship building you do versus other things. Um, but this idea that like, um, and I think why it's low hanging fruit to me is like, you know, there's the, if you want to change your bylaws, right? I mean, that's, that's a whole thing. If you, but one easy way to center relationships is just to like have more conversations with each other and build more ways into your board meetings that are about um, having conversations with each other or about ongoing learning, right? Around different things in your congregation. Um, we, you know, we talked about this importance of communication, right? And like, like I think there, it feels like there's a low hanging fruit around just 
just having more spaces for conversation and valuing that. Yeah. I'm thinking about the uh, book, Salsa Someone's Spirit by Juana Bordas um, as, a, as a next read as um, for people that are thinking about how to do those relationships differently than white supremacy culture would allow us to think about. Um, and that's one of the things she recommends is thinking about meeting time as relational time and not just writing it off as productivity time. Again, another, another complication of capitalist white supremacy culture is, you know, I'm not getting my money's worth at this meeting, you know? <laughs> Um, and how to deepen, how to use meeting time to deepen people's faith, I think is another way to get at it, is maybe, maybe we can't get faithful leaders, but how can we grow faith through leadership? Yeah, and I think it, it's, it's a conversation, um, I feel like I also had in my, my ministerial internship, Karnation, um, like, uh, also, like volunteering is like hard. It's particularly hard under capitalism for younger folks because like, you gotta work to make a living to survive in a system that is like hard to survive in right now, um, or can can feel that way, um, and where folks really are struggling to like make money. Right? I mean, there's these patterns of volunteerism we're noticing, um, and part of that is that folks are not volunteering as much because they don't have free time, right? <laughs> like, and the free time they do have, they wanna spend in meaningful ways um, and not in ways that I think governance can sometimes feel like soul numbing for people and like boring, you know, like super boring. Um, and what does it mean? And, and I, don't, I don't believe it has to be that way. <laughs> um, so what is it? Um, like, you know, I think like part of the question I think of like developing people's faith and governance and taking care of our leaders is like, and, and doing faith formation, right? With our leaders, like um, deepening people's faith is, is um, I think also making that a part of what it means to be in worship and in, in church together. And that like, how do I say this? Like that, hopefully that would also mean that like, it is a, like in terms of finding volunteers, right? You find people who like really um, are willing to put in the time in part because they are doing faith for me. Like they're doing the stuff they came to church for <laughs> in that meeting, right? Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't just happen on Sunday morning in one hour because we know it doesn't. It's it's the whole, it's the wraparound. Yeah, there's something really important there about about leadership rather than being about power and influence, being about development for the person, for the system, which gets us back to, um, they, they make this statement at the very end um, of the chapter under the takeaways, change, agility, and innovation are needed for Unitarian Universalism to survive. So we need to be more willing and able to change and adapt. Um, 
We need a congregational polity that serves us rather than blocks progress. So, so the document is calling us to find those ways to innovate, find those ways to change, to grow leadership. Yeah. Is there anything else? We're gonna revisit this chapter again, uh, but is there anything else you wanna bring up for this conversation out of this chapter? Yeah, my, my brain is just in this place of like, um, I feel like sometimes our conversations just go in these unexpected directions. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, I see the seeds of this conversation in, in sort of our pre-conversation conversation and like this one in a really interesting direction. Um, yeah, and I think what my brain did when hearing you say those, that feels like that sort of that concluding piece is also this like, how do we not just change because I think change is neutral, but how do we change faithfully? Like how do we change in a way that puts our religion, our theology, our our faith at the center of at the center of it? I feel like we we almost need a an empty chair practice that this chair, we're designating this chair as our mission and values. Mm -hmm. And so who is listening to and for mission and values in every conversation that we're having? That mm. puts faith at the center. That puts that this faith tradition at the center. Mm. I might try that in my next meetings. How, yeah, how is <laughs> I was I was just thinking that um, I know you usually do an action at the end, and I was like, "That's your action." <laughs> That's my action. No, I have I have a different action. Are you ready yeah, for the yeah. action for today? Um, do you have any final thoughts? I feel like, was that? No, I um, I feel like we got farther away from the text than we might want to. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think the last one, um, which is why I had the final page open, is the last recommendation that says, misconceptions about the nature of our congregational polity should be addressed as they are used to empower individual ministers and lay leaders to maintain a stagnant and exclusionary, exclusionary status quo. And so I'm, I'm hearkening back to what Reverend Sarah was talking about with the gadfly mm -hmm. controversy that's happening. Um, the fifth principle project, which is, we think is not the same, the fifth principle project referenced in this text, um, but the calls to revive democracy are dog whistles for calls to maintain the status quo. Um, clearly, one person, one vote means that the majority in our congregations who happen to be of majority identity, older, white, cisgendered, educated, wealthy, clearly that's gonna win the day if we're one person, one vote. And so that's as a dog whistle to not change and not to be more inclusive in the ways that this book calls for. Um, so yeah, I think that one is really, important. I find a lot of people don't understand our polity. I didn't understand our polity until I had a class on it. Um, and we get seduced by, we get seduced by the buzzwords too. Democracy, yeah, we believe in democracy, so we should revive the fifth, fifth principle, not realizing the implications of it. Um, so educating about what our polity currently is, and then dreaming about the future and imagining how we might change it to be more inclusive. Yeah, I'd love if you would just say like a little bit about some of that shift in your understanding of our polity. 
Um, uh, I came out of um, I came out of Islam, which is which has a different organization than say Catholicism, where there's very clear directive and direct lines. But it was still um, it's still in a lot of ways monolithic that there are movements and there are trends and they're conservative and there's liberal, um, but the way that a single congregation, a single mosque is run um, is very different than Unitarian Universalists, which rely so much on this really um, kind of rampant, I don't know, I feel like some of our congregations aren't just like little islands. They're like islands with moats and like these big walls around them and this, this radical individualism. And what I believe this text is calling for is not that anybody is going to control you or tell you what to do or tell you how to be. And that our faith movement relies on all of us together, or we're not actually a faith movement, we're just a congregation. And so to survive and to pass on who we are and what we are, we need each other. And so we can't have our moats and our walls and our drawbridges up. We've, we've got to reach out and be interconnected in a different way than congregational polity says, one church, one organization structure, you are on your own. Um, We've covenanted to be together, and I think we need to, we need to, we need to be together as a as a faith community. Did that make sense? It absolutely did. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, preach. <laughs> um, I know my brain is giving me. I know that Reverend Reverend Doctor um, Natalie Fenimore wrote a piece about polity that speaks to some of that, and as part of her work with the commission. And I didn't notice it in my reading of this section. And I'm not sure if that's just because I didn't notice it, but it's coming up in my brain as, and, and talking about like what Unitarian Universalist polity is. And I think calling for some of that. And like I said, I'm not gonna be able to pull it up right now to give a quote from it, but I know that exists out in the interwebs, uh, a piece that she wrote about, about that shift to, uh, yeah, uh, into thinking of ourselves as interdependent. I keep coming back to time and time again, and mostly because I really liked liked it, um, is Frederick Muir's I Church and his call for us to be interdependent, both congregation to congregation, but also individual and congregation to individual. And so that there's a movement away from how can this organization serve me to how can it serve we? And how can we be the church? Not it's my church, but it's ours. Um, yeah. So I can I come back to that article a lot. That, that's my go-to. Mm. Yeah, and it, it just, it makes me think of the conversation we were having with Reverend Sarah around what your theology is, like what you're worshiping, what's at the center of your theology, is I think there's a similar question in governance, is what's at the center of your governance. Um, and yeah, and I was, I was thinking about that when you're talking about the 
you know, walls and moats. And like, like people put up walls and moats sometimes. Sometimes I think, you know, like that's just what you've been taught. Sometimes I think people put them up because they've been hurt, right? I mean, like really, <laughs> like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like, it's not quite like mood or like, it's like, um, like I get that, right? I mean, like fair. <laughs> and, um, and you can't survive like that. Like people just can't survive like that. Um, well, and sometimes we do it because that's the only way we know. Yeah. And that's the, and again, talking about inheritances, that's what we've inherited. So many of us come out of another congregation to, to or another faith and to Unitarian Universalism. And so we don't always feel that we're empowered to change. And we come here because it, it does serve us. It does fit in a really good way. So why would I change it? Um, and, and so, and we've inherited that structure. And so it feels natural, feels normal. Um, and I just, I think we're being called that it isn't. There's other ways to do it. Other ways that might serve us better and keep us around longer. Yeah, and I'm thinking about like the, the flip side is people coming out of traditions where, you know, like they were told in really damaging ways, like in a really hierarchical structures, right? Like somebody used that power differential in the hierarchy to really damage somebody mm. and then they come mm -hmm. into your personal like I'm not you know I'm not I don't want that clearly that sucked <laughs> like um but then that can lead to this like uh like never allowing somebody any power over you mm. which means that you can never really have a leader I think um mm. never give somebody power right like I think and I think that that's a, like, I think we need leaders <laughs> and we need to not damage our leaders. Like we need leaders who are empowered, um, who we give power, right? Um, yeah. And we need, we need leaders. I think what, what you're speaking to is the need for our leaders, well, all of us really to, to heal our religious trauma. Mm -hmm. So many of us coming out of religious traditions where we were traumatized are reenacting or acting against those power differentials and we need to heal. We need to find places that we can. Yeah, and I also hear, I think in, in this is sort of adjacent, like in, in what you're saying, this idea that like there are other ways, <laughs> you know, like you might feel like this is the only way because that's what you were taught. This is the only way because that's how it's done here. Um, but actually there are other ways of being in the world and maybe they actually invite you deeper into what it means to be human, you know? Yeah. So here's our action for this time. Um, the action is an invitation to leadership. Shocking, I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I am very much of the position of the mindset that we don't all drive in the same lane, uh, that my lane is different than your lane, and the leadership that I might take on in my organization is going to be different than your leadership, and I think there's a role of leadership for everyone, um, so I invite you to discern with, in yourself, with the thought partner, with your minister, whoever it makes sense for you to discern, where you can best be of service, where do you, 
best fit in your organization and to stretch yourself into a place that doesn't immediately come to mind. All of our organizations need your voice, whoever you are, wherever you come from. And I invite you to bring that and your whole self to our congregations. And um, like to think of what feels like it would bring you deeper into Unitarian Universalism or invite you into, like, I love that. So I wanted to say, <laughs> I, I hadn't heard the action before we started. I'm just like, yes, Jamil, you nailed it. <laughs> um, um, and I wanted to say coming out of our conversation, yeah, but you know, like, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm thinking if you're really tired, um, burnt out, right? Like what, what feels like it might, you know, deepen your faith, like feed you, right? um yeah 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 because it absolutely can my long-term uh religious education teachers do it because they leave every week excited for the future they've just inspired these young people and they can see the future when they teach and i know a lot of people that would just that would burn them out faster as Everybody has a different lane and finding the place in the congregation where you'll be fed and also to challenge yourself to think about what did I not think about? Did I think I could never be on the, gov on the governing board because fill in the blank, right? Where, where could you step into leadership um, or move into leadership that is a place that, that maybe you hadn't because you had a message that you weren't the right person for it. Um, and those are the people we actually need in leadership. Yeah, and uh, strong pitch for boards. I love governance, actually. Like, okay, governance can suck, right? I mean, like, I'm, I, I think that it absolutely can, and maybe that, you know, is your experience of it, but also just want to pitch for that governance can be, a, if, if you love these questions of like, you know, like, like, power and how we use it and you know what does it mean to be faithful and what does it mean to like you know like how, where are the channels of communication like like i think that governance can absolutely be about all of those things and not just about you know mm -hmm. is section 5c of our bylaws like you know are we you know like i just i think that i, I would invite invite you to try it um, if, especially I think because governance can be a place where folks get messages that like I'm not good enough for XYZ reason um, and and to recognize that because it's faith formation uh, what feeds you can change throughout your life um, so maybe you know like you've been doing something for a while and it's not feeding you anymore and that's maybe an invitation to to think about that faith formation. Like we grow and change in our lives, right? And the same thing that you needed 10 years ago in terms of faith formation is maybe not the thing you need now. <laughs> like when I was 16, that's not the same thing that I needed when I was 26, right? right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So I'm gonna wrap us up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today. Go in peace, go in power. Go do good in the world and go knowing that you are loved. At the end of the podcast, we'd like to say a few thank yous. 
Thank you to Unitarian Universalist Justice Arizona, or UU Jazz, especially to Janine Gelsinger and Phoebe Dubich. And thank you all for being with us. Remember that you can contact us at uusacredstory at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.